This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello and welcome once more to the program. Why are we participating in the program today? Is it just to pass the time or maybe appear to be a good spiritual person? These are poor motivations and it would be much better to replace such motivations with something much more powerful and beneficial. In Mahayana Buddhism, the greatest motivation is bodhicitta, the intention to attain enlightenment because that's the best state to help others in whatever way they need, including, and most importantly, leading them to enlightenment themselves. So, before getting into the program, let's take a moment to think about our motivation, and if we find something only to do with this life, expand it to embrace all beings' welfare. Thank you. We're considering the text titled Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun by Namka Pal, which is a commentary on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. If you've been with us in previous programs, you will know that we've been discussing the five powers, first in connection with the practice of a whole lifetime, and more recently, in connection with death. The five powers, just to remind ourselves, are the power of intention, the power of the white seed, the power of remorse, the power of prayer, and the power of familiarity. And that's the order they appear for the lifetime practice. But in discussing them in terms of death, the order starts with the power of the white seed. This we discussed last week, and if you were tuned in, you may remember that according to Nampkar Pal, this means that before death, we purify all the non-virtuous actions we've done by practicing the four opponent powers. These, of course, are different from the five mind-training powers that we're talking about. Tapa Publications has brought out a reminder card that briefly describes the four opponent powers like this. 1. We apply the power of regret by considering the many harmful and negative actions we've committed in this and previous lives and developing sincere regret. Then 2. We apply the power of reliance by acknowledging that there are two main objects of our harmful actions the three jewels, that's the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, and living beings, and relying upon them. We rely upon the three jewels by developing complete confidence in their power to protect us, and we rely upon living beings by generating love and compassion for them. Then three, we apply the power of the opponent force by engaging in any virtuous action, such as making prostrations or reciting mantras, or even with a good motivation, engaging in daily activities such as washing and cleaning. And four, finally we apply the power of promise by promising not to repeat harmful action in the future. We conclude with a dedication, through this virtuous practice of purification, may all living beings, including myself, be completely freed from negative karma. Now, if we practice like this every day, it claims we can be free of our negative karma at the end of our life. Namkarpal says, in fact, that at death time we should be without fear and sorrow and happily be prepared to die. 
That means we must, must not be attached to anything at all, not our friends and relatives, nor our possessions, and especially not our body. This is because the body has been the basis for establishing the concept of a separate and independent I, which has led to all our negative actions and hence all our negative karma. So on the basis of this body, we are born in cyclic existence again and again as suffering beings. Namkarpal says, So we should make a strong determination not to adopt such an inferior body, the product of actions and disturbing emotions in the future, but to let the reality of the mind, its lack of inherent existence, rest in the perfect body of truth. Now what this means might be surmised from a description about Dzogchen, commonly known as the Great Perfection, and I take it from the website www.soul-guidance.com dash house of the sun in one word dash dzogchen dot htm It says, The natural state possesses the qualities of emptiness and clarity. These are, of course, concepts of our mind. Anything we think of, including what the terms emptiness and clarity means, is a construct of the mind and not the true natural state. But in our human world, we need words and concepts to communicate, and as such, these terms are approximations. The natural state is just itself, beyond the mind and all its constructions. When one is in the natural state, one just is. One cannot describe it accurately. The natural state is permanent, but Dzogchen does not hold the view that a separate independent self exists on its own and is self-sufficient. No eternal, independent, separate, concrete entity or identity such as an internal self or soul can be found. In normal life, we constantly create a sense of self. This grasping at a self is done by ignorance because we lack real knowledge and awareness of our true state of being. During practice, we cannot find the self. It's just not there. When we search the mind, it's not there. What is this I that we so desperately cling to? The self is not a single unified entity or substance, but it is a process occurring in time. It is a succession of states of consciousness having varied mental contents. It's like a river that changes from moment to moment. It is never the same. It goes on to say that we can attain a state of mind where there are little or even no thoughts. We experience a profound stillness or calmness. But this does not mean one has attained the natural state, says the site. One can get fixated on a state with no thoughts, but this is still a state of mind, and thus a reflection or creation of the mind. One needs to look at the source of thoughts. Who is thinking? Who is watching the thoughts? As we don't find either a watcher or what is being watched, both of them dissolve. Then a state of clear emptiness arises, emptiness of thoughts and clarity of awareness. In this state, we are not thinking, nor do we make an ana analysis or interpretation. We find ourselves in our natural state, beyond conception by the intellect. That is the Dzogchen commentary. But this is the state the Tibetan Buddhist practitioners aim for at death time, and the prerequisite to attain it is freedom from all attachments, or in terms of our text, the power of the white seed. In his commentary on the white seed at death time, his Holiness the Dalai Lama says, 
With the important note that we must relinquish attachment to our body, first is the force of the wise seed. This refers to thinking at the time of death. Now at the time of my death, I purify myself of all the negative things I've done during my lifetime. I admit to all the mistakes and wrong things I've done, and I give away all my possessions. The text has a quote from the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life about the horrors of facing death if we must die with a great deal of remorse and regret that we haven't taken care of our affairs. Since it is possible that we will experience a great deal of fear at the time of death, the first point is the white seed. To try to have mindfulness at the time of death and to apply all the opponent forces to purify the negative potentials we've built up. If we were involved in the practice of Tantra, we take self-initiation and renew our vows. We take care of all our possessions by giving them away with generosity and we do this without attachment, in a very clean manner. That is the force of the white seed. And that's His Holiness's commentary. Well, it's one thing to talk about confronting death and another realizing that we are destined for that confrontation. As long as we do not actually have the realization, it is possible that we will hang on to our life as it is, still attached to all the things that ostensibly please us and never get to the point of renouncing all our attachments and purifying our negativities. After all, don't we believe somewhere in our depths that the worldly pleasures we are addicted to will at some stage bring us real happiness? We have to come face to face with death before we can really understand what the text is talking about here. On the website www.psychologytoday.com, Dr. Alex Lickerman describes how he came to the fearful realization that he's mortal in an article entitled Overcoming the Fear of Death. It's a journey of much sickness, almost as though something was trying to tell him about his mortality through a string of health-challenging situations. The first was a stomach pain and general feeling of illness, the pain moving gradually from just above his belly button to somewhere near his appendices. At first, he thought he had appendicitis. However, by evening the pain had actually begun to improve, so I dismissed the possibility, he writes. I'd never heard of a case of appendicitis resolving on its own without surgery. But mindful of the adage that the physician who treats himself has a fool for a patient, the next day I asked one of my physician friends to examine me. When he did, he found a fullness he didn't like in my right lower quadrant and ordered a CT scan. To our mutual surprise, it showed that I had, in fact, developed acute appendicitis. I saw a surgeon later that afternoon who began me on antibiotics and scheduled an elective laparoscopic appendectomy, which he performed two days later. The surgery went well, and I was back at home that night with a bloated stomach, but minimal discomfort. At 3 a.m., however, I woke with projectile vomiting and after a particularly violent episode, briefly lost consciousness. Panicked, my wife called 911 and an ambulance delivered me back to the hospital where I was found to be anemic. My surgeon diagnosed an intra-abdominal bleed and began following my red blood cell count every few hours, hoping the bleeding would stop on its own. But by late afternoon, however, it became clear that it wasn't. So I was taken back to the operating room where the surgeon found and evacuated approximately 1.5 litres of free-flowing blood from inside my abdomen. All told, 
I'd bled out half of my blood volume over the course of 16 hours. Over the next few days, however, my blood count stabilized and my strength returned. So I was sent home four days after I'd been admitted, slightly less bloated than I'd been after the first surgery, but four units more full of strangers' blood. Three weeks later, my wife and I took a four-hour flight to Mexico, a vacation we had planned to take in Cabo San Lucas prior to my illness, spent three days on the beach and then flew back home. Two days later, Dr. Lickman got diarrhea. He'd only drunk bottled water in Mexico, so he thought he'd picked up a viral gastroenteritis that would work itself out in a few days. But a few days later, he developed a chest pain. He writes, I called my physician friend who asked me to return immediately to the hospital to have a chest CT, which in short order showed I'd thrown a large pulmonary embolism. In other words, a blood clot on his lung. He continues, I was taken immediately to the emergency room and placed on intravenous blood thinners to prevent another clot from travelling to my lung and possibly killing me. Luckily, this time my hospital stay was uneventful and I was ultimately discharged on an oral anticoagulant called Coumadin. A week later, the diarrhoea still hadn't resolved, however, so a stool culture was sent for Colostridium difficile, also known as C. diff, Colostridium difficile are bacteria that can cause swelling and irritation or colitis of the large intestine or colon that can result in diarrhea, fever and abdominal cramps. Dr. Lickman's stool tested positive for C. diff and he started the antibiotic vancomycin. Then I developed an allergic reaction to the vancomycin, he says, so I was switched to flagel. Within a week the diarrhea resolved but then a week later it returned. Relapses are common with Colostridium difficile colitis, so I tried flagel again, this time with a probiotic called Florastor. The diarrhea resolved and never came back. A week later, however, the nausea did. It was absolutely crippling, as was the anxiety that accompanied it. What could possibly be wrong now? I longed for the blissful ignorance of a non-medical mind that had no knowledge of all the terrible diseases I now thought I might have. I called my physician friend who suggested after listening to my symptoms that the nausea might be due to anxiety. Now I told him that idea hadn't occurred to me, that I'd supposed the anxiety was present as a result of the nausea, not as its cause, but that I was open to the possibility he was right. The next day I had a conversation with a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with mild post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So, perhaps almost unbeknownst to the doctor, the relentless string of disorders he had experienced had an effect on his mind, and as he suggests, that effect was amplified by his knowledge as a doctor. But would the ignorance of a layman's mind really have been blissful? He continues, I'm always surprised by people who say they're not afraid to die. Most are usually quick to point out they are afraid to die painfully, but not of the idea of no longer being alive. I continue to be mystified not only by this answer, but by the number of people who give it. Though I can imagine there are indeed people who, because of their age, character or religious beliefs, truly do feel this way, I've always wondered if that answer 
hides a denial so deeply seated it cannot be faced by most. Certainly, this has been the case with me. I love being here and I don't want to leave. I've always spoken openly of my fear of death to anyone who's ever asked. Not that many have. I suppose even the question is uncomfortable for most. But I've rarely experienced moments where I actually felt afraid. Whenever I've tried wrapping my mind around the concept of my own demise, truly envisioned the world continuing without me, the essence of what I am utterly gone forever, I've unearthed a fear so overwhelming my mind has been turned aside, as if my imagination and the idea of my own end were two magnets of identical polarity, unwilling to meet, no matter how hard I tried to make them. The true significance of my denial wasn't clear to me, however, until I was diagnosed with PTSD. The anxiety that began to envelop me at that point was of an entirely different order than I'd ever experienced before. It began to interfere with my ability to function, which made plain to me that what my brush with death twice had taken from me was my ability to believe I would never die. Knowing intellectually that death awaits us is quite clearly a different thing from believing it, much in the same way as knowing intellectually gravity will make you fall is a different experience from actually swooning at the edge of a parapet at the top of a tall building. Ultimately, being ill brought me to the realization, contrary to what I've always believed in my heart, that there was nothing special about me at all. Like everyone else, I was only a piece of meat that would eventually spoil. From that point forward, whenever I'd feel a minor twinge in my chest or develop a rash in my arms, or my hand would shake for no reason, I would become paralyzed with anxiety. Even though I recognized intellectually that my reaction was overblown, every new random symptom I felt caused my doctor's brain to leap to horrifying conclusions simply because I now knew in a way that I hadn't before that bad things could actually happen to me. I felt like one of my long-time patients who for as long as I've known him has been consumed by an anxiety so great he'd become like a child in his need for constant reassurance that he would be all right. His anxiety had made him inconsolable and his life a joyless nightmare. PTSD is often diagnosed in men and now women who return from the battlefield, women who've been raped, people who've witnessed the Twin Towers come down in 9-11, in short, in anyone who either has an intense traumatic experience themselves or witnesses one occurring to someone else. In my view, completely unsubstantiated by any psychiatric literature I should point out, PTSD results when a person has their deluded belief that they're going to live forever stripped away from them. I'd always considered the shattering of delusion in my life to be a good thing, something that's always brought me more happiness rather than less. And yet here seemed to be an example that contradicted that rule, for around the time I was diagnosed with PTSD, I was surely suffering to a degree I never had. Frankly, I was happier before living in denial. Over time, though, the crippling anxiety of PTSD resolved, and I returned to my previous level of functioning. However, even minor injuries or transient symptoms that I would have ignored before now stir up vague feelings of worry. I remain acutely aware to this day that my ability to believe in my invulnerability 
has been irrevocably ruined. I've decided, however, that this is a good thing. I've been given the opportunity to challenge my fear of death without actually having to be actively dying. Many others aren't so lucky. I began practicing Nichiren Buddhism 20 years ago because I was intrigued by the notion that enlightenment might actually be a real thing, attainable if only the correct path was followed. I've continued because I've had experiences with the practice that have convinced me it has real power to shatter delusions about life. But now, more than an intellectual curiosity, my desire for enlightenment has become synonymous with my desire to relieve myself of delusions about death. For me, three things are certain. First, my experiences with Buddhism so far have inclined me to think that enlightenment is a real thing and that it might be the solution to my problem with fear of death. But second, for me to become convinced that life is eternal, there's no beginning called birth nor ending called death, I must have an experience that proves it to me beyond a shadow of a doubt. I need to know it in a way I know gravity is real. I must confess, I can't today even conceive of what that experience could be. Yet I must remember that every time I've gained real wisdom from my Buddhist practice and become genuinely happier, it's always come as a result of having an experience I could never have predicted. And lastly, because I hope the establishment of indestructible happiness based on a belief in the eternity of life is possible, I must remain on guard against the seductive tendency to convince myself of it. Belief that arises from a desire to believe is usually, in my experience, too flimsy to withstand a genuine challenge. And I can think of no more genuine a challenge to a belief in life after death, whether through reincarnation or an extension to heaven or anything else, than the actual imminent approach of death itself. I fully recognize that my current belief about death, that it is truly the final end of the self, is likely to be correct, which makes me wonder if I wouldn't be better off throwing my energies into re-embracing denial and simply accepting that when it comes to my time to die, if I'm given the chance to see it coming, I'll suffer, however many moments, hours, days or weeks of fear there are to suffer, and then be granted a final release. If only I could. Once a delusion has been shattered, I've found there's no going back. And even if there were, at some point, I'm certain to be reconfronted with a denial eradicating sickness or injury. Everyone will. Depending on your current life stage, this might not seem like a pressing issue. But shouldn't it be? An experience like mine could become yours at any moment. And even more desirable than being able to die peacefully is being able to live fearlessly. In fact, one of the supposed benefits of manifesting the life condition of the Buddha is freedom from all fear. I've tried to resolve my fear of death intellectually and come to the conclusion that it can't be done, at least not by me. Some kind of practice that actually has the power to awaken me to the truth is required, assuming, of course, the truth ends up being what I hope it to be. Thus, my grand experiment continues. What about yours? And that is Dr. Alex Lickerman on www.psychologytoday.com. I think he pretty much sums up how we need to truly confront death and start living as though we are about to die 
if we haven't already. We need to get to that point where the delusion of immortality is shattered and we are truly faced with our impermanent and transient nature. In a commentary on the five powers at the time of death, Lama Zoparamsha, the great spiritual master of the foundation of the preservation of the Mahayana tradition, has this to say about the power of the white seed. It is explained that when you are dying, you should die with the six parameters. Now this refers to what we in English call the six perfections. That's generosity, morality, patience, enthusiasm or perseverance, concentration and wisdom. Lama Zoparamsha goes through the first four like this. When you are dying, divide your belongings into three parts. Offer the first part to the Guru Triple Gem to collect merit. Use one part to make charity to sentient beings and use one part for a party and so forth. To do any of these is charity. For morality, you should confess and abstain from the downfalls of individual liberation for oneself, generate the wishing bodhicitta and entering bodhicitta and engage in the vows. This is morality. In other words, as we said earlier, purify misdeeds with the four opponent powers, that's especially breakages of vows like the five or eight precepts, and the novice and fully ordained person's commitments. Wishing and entering bodhicitta refers to wishing to become a bodhisattva in the future and then taking the bodhisattva vows and engaging in the actions of a bodhisattva. Lama Zopa then goes on to patience and says, if you have a grudge from the past, offer forgiveness. If the person is not next to you, dedicate one part of your material possessions and tell the person, I have just this much, please forgive me. If the other person is unable to accept, be patient and let there be no unhappiness in your mind. Regarding perseverance, whatever you do, do it with joy. The other two, concentration and wisdom, are contained in these practices. He then continues to talk about giving away material possessions. He says, It's extremely urgent to let go of your material possessions, including those that you have the strongest attachment towards, and also to let go of people such as your children, family members and loved ones. It is urgent to let go of these things, to cut your clinging and attachment, in other words, to get let go of desire. In the case of material possessions, you can either let go of the objects by offering to the Guru, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, who are the field of merit, or by making charity to sentient beings. This means that you either give the objects away now, or you at least completely dedicate them by making a clear decision to offer them to the field of merit or as charity to others, even though they will physically be given later. You can do this by writing it down in a will. But even if you make a will, at least in your heart, Make the offering now to the Guru, Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. Dedicate your possessions to holy objects or give them away, making charity for specific causes and in various ways that can benefit sentient beings. Make the total dedication right now in your heart and mind because death can come any day or minute. The moment you think this, the painful mind of attachment goes away from your heart so your mind is total peace and happiness. It's like an apple a day keeping the doctor away. It is easy to understand offering to the Guru. When offering to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, you can just offer from your heart. The main thing here, the very point of the practice, is to let go so that you don't torture yourself with attachment. 
We will continue with this next time if I'm still alive, but now we have to stop as time is up. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll do so again next time. Please dedicate all the positive potential we've developed with this program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.